Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and the generous gifts of our listeners to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already partner with Fighting for the Faith, visit our website at fightingforthefaith.com and click on one of our friendly yellow buttons. One says join our crew, the other says donate. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. If you want to specify the amount, you click on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We cannot do what we are doing here without it. And now, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, May 5th, Cinco de Mayo, 2014. All right. Yeah, this is going to be one of those all-over-the-map programs, and I don't even know if I'm going to be able to get to everything I want to get to today. So you need to bear with. Bear with. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you slow down, stop, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to slow down, just open up our Bibles, and take a look at what's going on in there. Now, if you follow me on Facebook and Twitter, then you know that I've been a little silent lately. I haven't been, t- <laughs> I, have, I haven't had much time for social media. Although I don't exactly consider social media to be the most healthy form of being social, but that's kind of a different story. But anyway, um, I have been in the midst of uh, preparation for my debate with Jim Staley, and uh, one of the things I am—I I, got to admit—I am I'm kind of excited about this. Um, you know, as I was uh, getting ready to, you know, decide whether to do the debate, and and uh, actually, I think I had already at that point agreed to do the debate. They contacted me. Passion for the Truth Ministries contacted me and asked if I would do the debate. It wasn't me, you know, chasing after them, saying, "Oh, please, please debate me." It was, it, and they didn't exact, they didn't do that either. But um, you know, they they had uh, through one of the guys there had you know put out the feeler if I was interested, and uh, this was actually months ago, probably back towards the. End end of last year beginning of this year and uh and so anyway uh, but um so i contacted uh dr james white and um you know and we were talking about uh, the debate and i said hey do you know anybody who's debated have you debated anybody on this topic so i haven't debated nobody on this topic in fact he couldn't even think of you know anybody that he has known that has done a debate on this topic and so i kind of did a little research and this is a to- a debate topic that seems to come up in like 100 year cycles and uh, and the the last time this was like a hot topic if you would was it was you know a hundred hundred years ago 
it's like really okay you know although it you know it it kind and so you know it's not that there's not books written on it there are and um you know but uh, the the last really big time when you know the church was talking about this topic was with the seventh day adventists and so you're looking at you know the end of the 19th century beginning of the 20th century you know there was a lot of debates on this topic and then things kind of simmered down and no one's been really debating it out in the public although there's been academic papers on this and and so what's funny is is as i've been doing the research over the past few months on you know the topic of you know are christians should they keep the sabbath um, you know, and of course, you know, you, you look at Luther's small catechism and, you know, and, and, you know, Luther talks about the, you know, the Sabbath and it's like, but in what sense are we talking about here? And so, <laughs> you know, of course, Jim Staley's Hebrew roots. And so, um, there's, um, there's a big emphasis in his teaching on Torah observance, which is rather fascinating. So he's kind of got like a new spin on it. So this is like seventh day Adventism meets, Something similar to, but not quite the same as kind of the Judaizing elements in the early church. And I don't want to say they're guilty of the Judaizing heresy because uh, Staley's careful enough to make the distinction, you know, regarding the fact that, you know, it, uh, that, you know, we have faith in Christ and faith alone saves. And so, yeah, it's, yeah, again, you know, they're really weird. So, you know, I've been reading books on uh, on continuity and discontinuity when it comes to the law and, and, and you know, oh, man. So what I'm going to do is, um, you know, probably the day of the debate, um, either shortly after the debate or, you know, you know, maybe even just a little bit before, I'll put a blog post together at fightingforthefaith.com that will actually lay out what I would consider some good resources I've read along the way, you know, kind of good bibliographical uh, resources. Because the, one, of the, one of the things you have to understand in an academic debate is that there isn't a lot of time to develop uh, an argument. And so, you know, I'm, I'm having to have this kind of as a – I don't know how to, how to put this, but um, – I've got like a twin focus and I've got to figure out if, if that's going to even work, you know, in my opening argument. And, uh, and so you, you got to make your, you got to really kind of make your case right up front and, and you've got like 20 minutes to do it, <laughs> you know, and, and then the, uh, the, uh, the, the hand grenade lobbying begins. Cause then you have rebuttals and then there's going to be cross-examination in the debate and uh, and and so and then you got a closing statement. And so I think all said and done, you know, when it's all finished, um, you know, Jim's going to have like 45 minutes. I'm going to have like 45 minutes. And I mean, in reality, I mean, if I were to actually teach on this, um, it would probably take me to do, you know, if I just careful exegesis, we're going to walk through the passage. Here's how this is framed. And, you know, and this is how you, yeah, this is how this works with this and stuff like that. I could probably teach on this for three to four hours. And we, at the end of the three to four hours, well, that would be a, a pretty decent, um, you know, a little bit more than just a, a flight over the battlefield. But um, you, you understand what I'm saying. So this is a topic that, you know, I think is absolutely fascinating as I'm, as I'm uh, studying it. Um, but the amount of time that I'm putting into it, I feel like I'm going to need a Sabbath rest 
in after doing my Sabbath debate. So <clears throat> just just saying, I just putting that out there. So the debate, by the way, again, it's uh, it's going to be in the kind of the greater St. Louis area. I believe uh, Passion for the Truth Ministries is um, they are. St. Charles, Missouri, so kind of one of the uh, the, the, the northwest burbs of uh, St. Louis and in Missouri. And it's going to be 5.30 Central Time. And if for those of you who can't you know, come, you're thinking, man, that's a long way to go. Um, yeah, I get that. I, I get that it's a long way to go. You know, if you're living on the you know, West Coast or, you know, I, listen, it, it's going it is going to be cast on the web. So it, you know, the, it will actually be broadcast live on the web, I think, at both WorldNet Daily and Passion for the Truth Ministries. And so, again, SabbathDebate.com for the details. And uh, yeah, it, it, it really should be fascinating because. Uh, you know, it, I, it's, it's an interesting question. It's an interesting question that, ha- and, and, uh, and so I'm looking forward to seeing how Jim answers the question and I hope he's looking forward to how I answer the question. It should be fun. So, <clears throat> yeah, I wanted to get that off the table, but anyway, we've, oh man, <laughs> talking about what we got to talk about on today's episode of fighting for the faith. This is a program that came really close. I mean, really close to actually having a theme. And and after I tried to put all the puzzle pieces together, you know, it's not working. Oh, by the way, by the way, voting for uh, the worst Easter sermon of the year is still open. Um, it's going to be open until um, Sunday. Uh, in fact, it, well, I should put it this way. Voting is going to be open until we go on get, – get ready to go on the air – uh, a week from today. That's probably the best way to put it. So voting is still open. Go to fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see right at the top of the page, you can cast your vote for this year's winner of the worst Easter sermon of the year contest. And what I've noticed is a, it's a little bit of a horse race. Um, the, the person who was in the lead on Saturday wasn't in the lead on Sunday. The person who was in the, in the, in the lead on Sunday is not the person who's in the lead today. So um, it's, it, it's a, it's a little bit of a horse race. So if you haven't already cast your vote, for the worst Easter sermon of 2014, go to fightingforthefaith.com. You have uh, until we go on the air, you know, next week or when we record next week, you know, the, uh, a week from today, uh, to do so. So I'll let you know that. But um, so, this, by the way, yeah, I'm, I'm like. <laughs> You get into those situations where you just got all this energy and, you know, Roseboro with energy. And no, I'm not on caffeine. That's the funny thing. Um, my uh, my wife has a um, little side note here. Um, you know, in my perennial quest to become half the man I used to be, um, my wife has changed up my diet. And I, I don't know the name of what it is that my wife has put me on. But... It has given me so much energy. I feel like I'm on caffeine all day. And, um, and I, again, I don't know the name of it, um, but I call it the yada yada diet <laughs> because I can't remember the name of it. So my wife does not like the fact that I call it the yada yada diet. But anyway, I, 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 I'm eating a lot of fruits, vegetables, um, a little bit, some nuts. Um, you know, there's protein in there and bran and, and 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 so and there, and I get to eat like you know hard boiled eggs. It's it's the weirdest diet I've ever been been on because um, I'm not eating regular meals, and so um, I'm like constantly eating throughout the day, and I'm always full. 
oi, 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 this thing. Yeah, and so I have all these t- – I, my wife puts things together for me in these little Ziploc baggies. So like one baggie you know, has like I, – I, I, it's, it's like cauliflower, uh, little cherry tomatoes, you know, uh, peas and, um, and little baby carrots and stuff like that. And, uh, and so I'll have that. And then, you know, with the other bag, you know, it has my, you know, brand cereal for the day. Uh, another bag has, you know, like, you know, s- some protein lunch meats and some crackers. And then, you know, and then I've got, you know, a, one, another bag that has like, you know, some, you know, some of those unsalted, non-flavored almonds or, or you know, and, and so, it, and so it's like, and I'm supposed to eat like, you know, kind of like graze throughout the day. It's that's the weirdest thing. When you count up all the calories on this thing, it's like it's not that many calories. And with all the exercise I'm doing, it kind of works out. But, um, but the thing is, is that by having all these tiny little meals throughout the day, wow, <laughs> it's like I have all this energy, and it's just the weirdest thing. So if you if it sounds like I'm bouncing off the ceiling, it, it kind of I am. And and yeah, it's diet. So. And, uh, you know, hopefully, you know, by the end of the year, I will have achieved my goal of becoming half the man I used to be. I've got 40 pounds to go. And I, th- <laughs> you know, actually, I, well, yeah, I've got 40 pounds to go. And hold on, that's the goal. So anyway, why was I talking about that? <laughs> so let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. No theme today. Um, first of all, we're going to, uh, we've got a William Tapley, 30 Eagle of the Apocalypse, co-prophet of the end times update. For those of you who are into like, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the triple crown, you know, Kentucky Derby and all that kind of stuff. Apparently there's a, there's an end times warning associated with the Kentucky Derby, which was just contested over the weekend. And it's a short little video. We'll uh, play of uh, William Tapley. Um, we will switch gears and we got a Patricia King update talking about feasting in the wilderness and, uh, and then we'll switch gears again and, uh, I have no idea how the brakes are going to work in this episode. There's a church in, uh, Bellevue, Illinois, uh, that, um, those of you who are Star Wars fans know that, uh, you know, the 4th of May apparently is a big Star Wars thing. And so there is a church in Illinois that, uh, they did Star Wars Sunday and celebrated May the 4th be with you. Um, and they got media coverage. So you know, it's like, and it's so unoriginal now. You know what I'm saying? Because, I mean, after the Star Wars Easter spectacle is spectacular. I mean, I should send them the link to that and let them know what uh, the unchurched people think of it. But it's not a mega church. Um, you know, as best as I can tell, it looks like kind of one of those liberal mainline uh, Presbyterian churches. Um, so uh, we, we we got that. Um, then, you know, time permitting, I have a, uh, <laughs> I don't even know how to explain it. it I've got a, uh, Chuck Pierce, uh, Pierce's Ponderous Prophecies update. And it's been a while since, uh, the, you know, the folks there at Glory of Zion has, have posted, uh, one of Pierce's Ponderous Prophecies. And this one's entitled is let, let favor explode around you. So if you're looking for a favor explosion, you know, from God. Uh, normally, I think explosions are bad things and usually destructive, but apparently God wants to explode favor around you. And uh, and I don't know if we'll get to that one, but I wanted to cover a little bit of what happened at Catalyst. Um, you know, it, the Catalyst da- Dallas uh, was last week, and Catalyst is one of those big <laughs> kind of like networking, you know, and so they bring in a lot for the most part, like mega church pastors, seeker driven guys and things like that. Although Tullian was there. 
Um, but you know, it's listen. You know, when Tullian you know speaks at a, at something like this, it's not because he's approving of everything that's going on. Uh, you know, he basically, you know, I, I know Tullian, and Tullian will go anywhere to preach the gospel. So uh, the one thing you can count on is is that uh, whatever happened at Catalyst, the people there heard the gospel if they listened to Tullian. But um, one of the things that happened is that they had a gal there um, who is a Roman Catholic mystic, and they had like a workshop uh, where she taught the people there how to do a contemplative slash centering prayer. And uh, and it's uh, no bueno, no bueno at all. In fact, um, uh, Ken Silva at Apprising Ministries covered it uh, last week, and he put video up uh, of the of the gal who actually um, was the one facilitating the centering slash contemplative prayer there at Catalyst. Her name is Felina. I don't even know if I can pronounce her name right. Hertz. And uh, and uh, so as part of you know kind of giving background on the lady who did the Catalyst workshop on contemplative centering prayer, um, he actually posted video of. I, I don't know, a chapel service that she gave at Biola University. So we'll listen to a part of that. And uh, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, play for you a little bit of uh, one of uh, this gal's uh, Felina's, one of her favorite guys that she mentions in this speech, uh, it, Thomas Keating, a Cistercian monk. Play for you a little bit of audio that tells you what it is, the worldview and the religion of uh, the people who are into this centering contemplative prayer thing and what it's really all about. And I might even post a link uh, uh, to a previous episode of Fighting for the Faith that I did back in 2011 on this exact same topic. Uh, And if you haven't heard it, you need to hear it. And if you have heard it, it might be worth listening again, just to kind of refresh your memory as to what, so when, you know, if you hear a seeker driven, you know, person out there promoting, um, Centering prayer or contemplative prayer is another name that it goes by. They're 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 one and the same thing for the you know that's realistically what they're about. But what is the religion that's really behind it? It's not Christianity, and uh, and so that's how we're going to spend today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. A sermon review. We'll be listening to a Nicole Crank sermon. <clears throat> yeah, <laughs> listen, I I hate to depress you. I mean, after the depressing, horrible. No good, rotten uh, Easter sermons that we had last week. I I thought we'd start, you know, hit the ground running. Yeah, we're going to get right back into the groove. This is a normal broadcast week for uh, fighting for the faith, and so I thought we would just come right out of the shoot with a <laughs> with a, a Nicole Crank sermon because you all are just dying to hear one of those. So listen, we got a lot of ground to cover. I really recommend that you make yourself comfortable um, because of, you know, that's just improves your listener experience. And it's been a while since I've told you, but, you know, listen, if you've never tried listening to Fighting for the Faith with a pair of fuzzy bunny slippers on, because listen, everyone's all about the experience nowadays. And if you really want to enhance your listener experience while listening to Fighting for the Faith, strongly recommend pick up a pair of fuzzy bunny slippers they do actually work and enhance your listener experience. So we're going to get right to it. We've got a short William Tapley update. That requires me to do this. Doom and gloom coming soon. Listen to 30 Eagles tune. Doom 
God is telling us the end is coming soon, very soon. You'll see signs up in the sun and stars and moon, doom and gloom, very soon. Rapture comes at night or noon, doom and gloom, very soon. If you're ready, you will meet the bride and groom. Yeah, there we go. Doom and gloom coming soon. Now, of course, you know, William Tapley always gives us the prophetic insights regarding major sporting events. Um, if you've listened to Fighting for the Faith for any length of time, then you know this. In fact, not only just major sporting events, it could be like obscure sp- sporting events. He finds prophetic insights and warnings from God in like the craziest places. Well, apparently there's some prophetic end times warnings associated with the just recently run Kentucky Derby. Yeah, the Kentucky Derby, one of the, was it the, was it? California, was it California Chrome? I forget the name of the horse that won. Anyway, uh, here's William Tapley to give us the uh, prophetic end times warnings that are supposedly embedded in the running of the Kentucky Derby. Here we go. This will be just a very brief video. And I've got my polo shirt on today. Because, as my father used to say, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. And I've been doing some very serious videos lately about Pope Francis. And last week, one of my subscribers sent me a note telling me that one of the horses in this year's Kentucky Derby was called Vickers in Trouble. Mm, Yeah, clearly this is a reference to Pope Francis. And, of course, we both immediately thought of Pope Francis. The Pope is called the Vicar of Christ. And Yeah, that's what he's called, but uh, that's not a title given to any man on this planet. In this case, he is certainly a vicar in trouble. So, I thought, well, maybe he'll finish first or second or somewhere in the money. So, I watched the race yesterday, and, of course, California Chrome won. And although vicar's in trouble was in the running for, oh, about three-quarters of the race, he faded at the end. And I didn't think anything more about it. Until this morning, it occurred to me, I wonder where Vickers in Trouble did finish. And would you believe he finished dead last? In fact, no. I mean, oh, it's a sign from God, I'm telling you. This is a picture of him coming in dead last. And I think that is significant. I think our Lord is telling us something about Pope Francis. Yeah. You know, again, <laughs> why would Almighty God choose to communicate in such an obscure way that only you, William Tapley, could see this? <laughs> Just, uh. He is a loser. And it's also interesting to take a look at the winning time. If you check here... There's the winning time for California Chrome. The winning time was 2 minutes and 3.66 seconds for California Chrome. In any case, I thought this was kind of interesting. I thought I would do this video for your entertainment. Mm-hmm. You succeeded there. And possibly for your education. No, no. <laughs> Ain't nothing educational about this. In any case, next week... I will be back to doing more serious videos about Pope Francis. (laughs) Yeah, I can hardly wait. (laughs) 
He considers those to be serious. Anyway, moving along. All right, so um, are you having a wilderness experience? Do, do you know that uh, you know, if you're feeling dryness, um, don't go out and grab lotion. No, there's a, there's a more spiritual solution to dryness, and Patricia King is here to give us the details. It's, this is her <laughs> video entitled Feasting in the Wilderness. Here we go. Are you finding yourself in a bit of a wilderness, maybe in the spirit or even in natural things that you're going through? A bit of I have no idea what that means. A desert where things are dry and you're looking for water to refresh yourself and there doesn't seem to be any. Or maybe that, you know, it says that the, the water of the word brings renewal, but you're saying, well, I'm reading my Bible, but nothing's fresh. Nothing seems to be watering my soul. And you're So you're reading your Bible and nothing seems fresh. Apparently you got a stale Bible. I mean, who knew, you know? Just finding yourself in a dry place right now. Yeah, dry place. Pretty humid here in Indiana. Well, I've got a great message for you. Oh, I bet you think you do. And if you um, turn in your Bibles, if you have them to Exodus 5, verse 1. Exodus 5. <laughs> hmm, okay. I seem to recall in the book of Exodus early on, we're got, we got Moses. Mm-hmm. Hmm, okay. What is the solution to dryness that's going to be in Exodus 5? I, how much you want to bet this is a Bible twist? It says, and afterward, Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go. Right. So this is in the narrative regarding the showdown between the Lord, Yahweh, and the false god, Pharaoh. And Yahweh says, let my people go. And you see in this, Patricia, some kind of cure for spiritual dryness. Um, can I kind of ask the obvious question? And that is where in this narrative in the book of Exodus in chapters 1, 2, 3, or 4, um, since we're at 5 verse 1, do you see that God has set this narrative up as the problem that Moses was experiencing was spiritual dryness? And um, and therefore, this showdown with between Yahweh and Pharaoh resulted in Moses, um, you know, having his soul watered and the dryness of his soul being cured. Yeah, see, yeah, I just you're off topic. That they may listen to this, celebrate a feast to me. In the wilderness. Yeah. And so here God is inviting his people into the wilderness. For what purpose? To celebrate a feast. Uh, <laughs> um, so you see in this text a universal invitation from God to go to the wilderness and celebrate a feast? <laughs> How did you get there? <laughs> this, you can't do this to the Bible. I think it's awesome, and I feel prophetically that he's calling you in this time in your life to feast on the Lord and to celebrate that feast in the wilderness, in the midst. Really? Um, <laughs> do you, okay, where is the closest wilderness to Indiana? I, I have to think about this. I think I would have to head somewhere to, like, the Pacific Southwest, maybe, like, New Mexico. 
You know, there's a wilderness in Texas. That's probably closer. So do I bring a, a lunch with me, a, um, a basket, you know, you know, maybe a picnic, you know, so that I can go and feast and rejoice in the wilderness to solve my I mean, oh wait, I'm th- I'm thinking literal wilderness. Are is this some kind of weird allegorical, mythical, you know, not real wilderness that you're talking about? Midst of your dry place, yeah. In the midst of a difficult place, he's saying, "I am going to prepare a banquet feast for you." You know, um, <laughs> Exodus five doesn't say that. I am going to give you food in this wilderness that you know not of. Uh, <laughs> how is she getting this? <laughs> this is 5 verse 1. Woo. Now just think about this. Oh, I'm thinking, all right. I don't think you are. When God was leading Israel yeah. into their promised land, he chose to lead them through a wilderness first. A desert. I've actually been in the actual desert. And there's... There's just miles and miles and miles of sand. Yeah, I've seen pictures, yeah. There's barely a shrub to be seen. There's definitely no water there. There's no life there. There's hardly, it's just sand for miles. Yeah, as many trees as the moon. I agree, you know. No, and just the wind that blows on the sand and there's mounds of sand. There's just nothing there. Yeah. And yet God said, I'm going to use the wilderness. I'm going to take you through the desert before you enter your promised land. Why? It was because he wanted them to feast in that wilderness. Okay, now let's kind of back up a second here. Um, You could say typologically there is a function and a reason why God had you know, the people go through the wilderness and it has to do with, you know, the plan of salvation or, you know, kind of how the Christian life works and stuff like that. I mean, kind of work with me here is, you know, if you want to, you, and and you're not doing any violence to uh, the, the biblical story. If you do this, if you look at the story of Exodus, you know, the children of God born in slavery under a false God, and then God through mighty acts of judgment, brings them out from slavery, baptizes them in the Red Sea, and then they have a lifetime. That's you know about how long they spent in the wilderness was one generation. Um, they spend in the wilderness, and God provides for them manna from heaven. And you can maybe say, well, the manna from heaven, maybe we could talk about how that might relate to maybe like the Lord's Supper, okay, something like that. And that sustains them in the wilderness. And then Joshua, Jesus, leads them finally into their rest, the promised land. Now, you know, you think, okay, so think of that as kind of like a roadmap of the Christian life. Okay, and you can and you can do the, this is typology, and Christians have seen this, you know, f- you know, for millennia. This is not this is not something Rosebros come up with. I've you know, you can read this in the Church Fathers. But here's the idea: then is is that you, you can kind of see how the Christian life plays out, right? And what's our promised land? Well, the new heaven, the new earth. That uh, the new earth really is our promised land. And so, and Christ is the one who, you know, at, uh, you know, on the last day, the day of judgment, is going to bring us into our promised land, and He's going to kick the inhabitants of the earth out and give it to the, you know, His. You see what I'm saying? That that's how that all works. But that's not what she's doing with this. It, apparently, 
if you're experiencing spiritual dryness, um, you know, go and have a feast in the wilderness and God's going to, you know, make it rain and you're going to get wet spiritually or something. Yeah, this is totally missing the point. In fact, so much so I can't even bring myself to play even another second of that video. All right, we are up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. I forget who's up next. <laughs> Stay tuned. We got we got a lot of ground to cover. We'll be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater presents Church Day Select. And now, Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater proudly presents Sessions with Mildred. So, uh, do you know why I called you in here today? Am I in trouble? Oh, no, 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 of course not. We're just worried about you. Is this about my tithes? You know, I- I'm so sorry. I forgot the $5. Well, you hate me now, don't you? Oh, no. No, you've been very good about meeting your tithe quota. Besides, if this had been about your tithes, we would have sent someone to your house. I just wanted to discuss your attitude because some of the elders have started to talk about it. My attitude? Oh, yes, your attitude. You see, we're all about our Congress having audacious faith. But we've noticed that you seem to be having difficulty being on Jesus during services. Um, are you talking about the Holy Ghost, Toki Pokey? Is I not dancing right? You know, I, I tried practicing at home, but when I put my whole self in, I fell over and injured Fluffles. Who is Fluffles? Well, uh, he's my cat, and after I fell down, I didn't know if he was breathing. Okay, we we seen you straight from the top. Look, you don't have to dance during the services. But you could at least start singing. I mean, what's the point of having jumbo screens with sing-along lyrics if people aren't being audacious and using them? When I was younger, I had this bird, and I decided to take it outside with me and start singing to it, and a hawk dove down and snatched Muffin from my finger. Oh, dear. Uh, I'm so sorry about Muffin. But let's get back to the present point. If you don't want to sing or dance during the service... Then I guess we'll let you have make that choice. But if nothing else, won't you please be more Jesus and just do the hand motions? 
Well, last year I had my gerbil outside and his hamster ball, and uh, the interview is not going as expected. Well, I was practicing hand motions, and my bracelet caught a glare in a driver's eye, and the car swerved, and it hit Mr. Cuddles. He flew into the mouth of an octopus living in the sewer. Apparently, he didn't taste very good, so he spit him back up into the street where my neighbor ran him over with his lawnmower, which broke the hamster ball, but not Mr. Cuddles. So then Mr. Cuddles escaped, and then a dog thought Mr. Cuddles was a chew toy, so he chewed on him. But Mr. Cuddles didn't like that, so he survived, and I got him back. Well, that's finally something positive. I bet you anything that Mr. Cuddles would love for you to be more audacious in church. Well, but he died a week later from rabies that he got from the octopus. Uh, well, I think we'll have to schedule a second meeting for you sometime in the next... Never. I, I mean months. Don't pay more for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if they practice contemplative prayer or centering prayer. Yeah, a little bit of a warning coming up on that. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world, and you can partner with us. That's right, it's a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to post office box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Let me thank you for your support. We cannot do what we are doing here without it. Okay, moving along, I need to let you know that we are going to have to skip. Yeah, see, I hate to do this. We'll have to talk about the Star Wars. Uh, May the 4th be with you probably tomorrow. We're going to have to get right to our Catalyst coverage. And since we're talking about contemplative and slash centering prayer, 
which, by the way, y- y- this is not biblical prayer at all. There is no foundation for this anywhere in the Scripture. But since we're doing that, well, that requires us to play this. Are you feeling sleepy? This is the kind of music to turn your brain off and just sit in silence. Okay, enough of that. <clears throat> All right, so <laughs> that's our uh, contemplative prayer update music. So uh, we're going to be listening to a portion of a message delivered by Felina Hertz at Biola University. And the reason we're going to be listening to it is not only is it significant that Felina was uh, speaking at Biola University, but um, Felina was also the gal who led at Catalyst in Dallas just last week. Um, which is a big, you know, mega church get together and networking event kind of thing. She was the one who uh, led a contemplative prayer session. In fact, there's a photograph of uh, the people at. Uh, if you want to, you want to see this, you go to uh, prizing dot org, and at uh, Ken Silva's site, there's a photograph there of a bunch of women. For the most part, it seems like all the women are the ones who are into the contemplative mysticism stuff, misty chicks, if you would. And uh, Felina is, well, she's a Roman Catholic. In fact, here's a little bit of her background. And again, you can see all of this over at apprising.org if you want to see uh, the, the the videos in their entirety and take a look at you know what exactly took place over at Catalyst. But to give you a little bit of a background about Felina, here's Felina explaining uh, who she is and what she's about and what kind of <clears throat> uh, brand of Christianity she'd be into. Listen in. For me, I grew up in the um, evangelical tradition, and in my adult life, I um, came into the Catholic Church, and I think a lot of this was spirit-led. You know, as I grow in Christ and become more of who God's created me to be, the Catholic tradition um, was becoming a sort of an incubator for my soul, and really the contemplative um, part of me felt really nurtured in the Catholic faith, and so I had to make that decision, and I wanted to come into the Catholic Church, and it was like, oh my gosh, like, what is my husband going to think? What is my father going to think? What is my community going to think? And- right. <laughs> so, Felina, that's a little bit of background about her. She's a, uh, she's a convert to Roman Catholicism. Uh, ex-evangelical. And why is she uh, so excited about that? Well, because she's into contemplative mysticism, mm -hmm, which really has been developed and and fine-tuned, if you would, by Roman Catholic monks and Roman Catholic monastic mystics. And uh, and so what you're going to hear next, again, uh, this is a gal who led a contemplative prayer workshop at Catalyst, big evangelical seeker-driven megachurch type of, you know, event. Uh, and um, Felina, you know, um, well, she was she also recently spoke at Biola University and was teaching this exact same kind of <clears throat> stuff. 
listen, this this is the kind of stuff that'll rot your soul out of your body. I mean, this is this is how dangerous this stuff is. But uh, to kind of give you an example, what it is that she taught, and then we'll take a listen to one of her heroes, uh, one of Felina's heroes. I, you know, we'll listen to what she said at Biola University. And listen to one of her heroes, and you'll kind of get an idea as to why contemplative prayer isn't biblical prayer. It's something completely different to be avoided like the plague. Here's Felina. Nearly 10 years ago, upon returning from my first visit to Sierra Leone, what I knew in my mind and heart about God and forgiveness, I was really struggling to express. One of my favorite teachers is a 90-year-old Cistercian monk. His name is Thomas Keating. Okay, keep that name in mind. One of her favorite teachers is a 90-year-old Cistercian monk by the name of Thomas Keating. Okay. Um, We're going to listen to a little bit of Thomas Keating. I've played what you're going to hear before on Fighting for the Faith, but it's been three years. But I want Felina to tell us a little bit more. So just again, keep in mind Thomas Keating be one of her heroes. And why did she go to Catholicism? Because it really helps her in her contemplative thing. We continue. He says if we stay on the Christian journey long enough, eventually we'll reach a point where the practices that have sustained us fall short. They don't support us like they used to. When this happens, though it can be incredibly disillusioning at first, it's actually an invitation to go deeper with God, to draw nearer to God. In the face of agony in Sierra Leone, my faith fell short. Forgiveness for such horrific wrongs seemed like an impossibility. Healing for my friends and their nation seemed completely out of reach. But in the face of injustice, forgiveness is, in fact, the only thing that heals. Whether that injustice is on a national or global scale or in a very personal experience in our life or in the context of our family and community, forgiveness is the only thing that can absorb the pain and heal ourselves and those around us. But let me be clear. Forgiveness is not a license to allow someone to harm us or someone else. So she has some concept of forgiveness, but this isn't rooted in the cross. Forgiveness can be employed simultaneous with implementing boundaries for safety and restitution for the one who is causing harm. You or someone you know may be in a very harmful relationship, one that is emotionally, psychologically, or physically dare I say, even spiritually abusive. Christianity demands the oppressor be brought to accountability and the victim protected. Accountability and forgiveness can coexist. Accountability brings restoration for both victim and oppressor. Forgiveness affirms that both the victim and the oppressor are loved by God. Forgiveness as an intellectual or spiritual concept is one thing, but when treated unfairly or when we or others are victimized, how can we live the way of forgiveness? Okay, this is where the rubber meets the road, and this is why I put the context in here so that you can hear, you know, she, she's wrestling with, you know, systemic injustice in the world in Sierra Leone and things like that. And, you know, she's been there, you know, feet on, you know, boots on the ground, you know, seen it, experienced, talked to people who've been through it. I mean, you know, seen the wake of destruction that humans are capable of creating, if you would. 
And and so now she's talking about forgiveness. So the solution, how can I forgive? I, well, it's pretty simple. I look at Christ on the cross and realize, okay, I have been forgiven much. I can forgive. Uh-huh. Yeah, because whatever anyone's sinned, their sins against me, nothing in comparison to my sins against God. You know, something like that. You know, was is that the solution we're going to get? No. How can injustice, suffering, and pain be transformed? In Matthew sixteen twenty four, Jesus said, "Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me." Yes. This is a radical teaching that following Jesus is like a crucifixion. Yes. In my life, more than any other Christian discipline, contemplative prayer practices have supported this primary Christian teaching. The and how do contemplative prayer practices hook into the cross again exactly? What does that have to do with what Christ suffered on the cross for us? Yeah, I don't see the connection. See, she was, she was, you know, she, I was tracking with her and then all of a sudden she threw this contemplative thing out and it's like, you know, where in the Bible does it teach contemplative mysticism? It doesn't. Christian life is not for patsies, but for bold, courageous people who aren't afraid to die. Yes, that death could one day mean martyrdom for a few of us, dying a physical death for taking the stand for peace, justice, and reconciliation. Yeah, uh, when you look through the uh, history of the Christian church and the martyrs, uh, the people who were martyred were martyred for their confession of faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and him being the only God and only Lord. They were not martyred for peace, justice, or you know, in the American way and things like that. But rather than focusing on the notion of physically dying for following Christ— I'd like us to hear the hidden wisdom of this teaching that speaks to crucifying the ego. Okay, so apparently you've come up with a whiz-bang way, a methodology of crucifying the ego. Hmm. Contemplative prayer practices support us in the process of dying to our ego. And it is our ego, after all, that keeps us from extending mercy and forgiveness. You mean our sinful nature, right? Contemplative prayer makes the way for us to grow into forgiveness. So contemplative prayer allows us to grow into forgiveness, really. Where in the Bible does it say that? I mean, this sounds like, I mean, it's just too good to be true, right? Forgiveness of ourselves and others. That's because contemplative practices support Christian transformation. Okay, contemplative, are they a means of grace? Contemplative practices support Christian transformation. How so? Where are the promises in the Bible associated with contemplative mysticism and that through these contemplative practices that they are a means of grace by which God sanctifies us? Yeah, I don't see any pr such promises attached to any such methods. Transformation is the process of taking up our cross and following Jesus, of dying to the old creation, which the Apostle Paul explains in 2 Corinthians 2, or 2 Corinthians 5, and being formed in the image and likeness of Jesus, who is the ultimate model of forgiveness, who declares from the cross amidst his brutal executioners, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing.
Think of contemplative prayer as a cruciform for transformation. Uh, why? Why should I? By the way, again, this was delivered at Biola University. The very practice of contemplative prayer conditions us to become more Christ-like. How, again, how can, you, how can you say that? Where in the Bible does it promise that if I follow contemplative practices that I will become more Christ-like? So what is contemplative prayer? How is it distinct from other forms of prayer? I'll offer you four considerations today. First, contemplative prayer is different from the typical kind of prayer we're used to, like verbal prayers, prayers of intercession, and prayers of praise. The primary distinction of contemplative prayer is that it's characterized by silence, solitude, and stillness. And where does God's word promise that we will be more like Christ if we practice solitude, silence, and stillness? Again, where are the promises associated with these practices? While Scripture doesn't necessarily give us explicitly prescribed methods of contemplative prayer, it doesn't give us any prescriptions for contemplative mysticism at all. The principles of prayer characterized by silence, solitude, and stillness are found throughout the Hebrew and Christian texts. Uh Psalm 46.10, Be still and know that I am God. Yeah, be still and know that I am God is not a prescription for contemplative mysticism. Now, before she reads any more verses, I think it's important for us to hear from, uh, well, the 90-year-old Cistercian monk that uh, she was glowing about and uh, who you know she really looks up to, and have him explain to us really what's behind all of this contemplative mysticism what's the uh you know what's it really all about what's the goal if you would uh, of all of this and i need you to hear it from him so without any further ado here's thomas keating he's going to be asked a question the question is difficult to hear and i apologize for that but i'll play the answer uninterrupted so that you can hear what this contemplative centering prayer, you know, silent solitude centering prayer is all about. Here we go. Often the fall self, you know, the, the, we're trying to reach the person in the suburbs that's leading the false life that thinks the car and the, and the plastic surgery will make them happy. Where is that, what is that spiritual journey from the mundane to the divine? Well, uh, have you got a few hours? <laughs> well, uh, since you uh, wanted a short answer, uh, the beginning of the spiritual journey is, is the realization, not just the information, but a real interior conviction that there is a higher power or God or to make it as easy as possible for everybody that there is an other capital O second step to try to become the other still a capital O 
And finally, the realization that there is no other. You and the other are one. Always have been, always will be. You just think that you aren't. And that uh, as the spiritual journey unfolds, one lets go of these false beliefs in one's separation from God and begins to perceive in all of events and in other people the same presence of God that one is more and more aware of in oneself at the deepest level. And thus the words of Paul become something that makes sense, that God is all in all. In other words, in a sense, we not only become God, but are God. There you go. The whole goal of contemplative centering prayer, which is, you know, centering prayer is another name for contemplative prayer. The whole goal is basically, uh, it's, this is based on a pantheistic worldview, and it's monism, okay? This is straight-up monism. You know that that the, you know that it lo- you lose the uh, creator creation distinctive, and all the all of these practices are designed to help you, according to Thomas Keating, who is um, Felina's you know the hero. You know one of the reasons why she came, became a Roman Catholic as opposed to an evangelical is because you know they were more helpful in her contemplative practices and Thomas Keating here makes it very clear that the whole goal of all of this is for you to realize that you are god that there is no other this is pantheistic monism that we're dealing with here and this is what she was teaching at Catalyst and this is what she was teaching at Biola University Now, call me old school, but I think that there's a problem here, and it's a big one. So let's hear now her biblical proof, although per se these contemplative practices aren't exactly taught in Scripture. We continue. Lamentations 3, 24 through 28. Yahweh is all I have, I cry, so I will wait in patience. The Most High is good to those who hope in God, to all who seek God's presence. Yeah, Lamentations, written by the prophet Jeremiah after the destruction of Jerusalem. Um, yeah, he wasn't practicing the presence or the prayer examining. He wasn't doing centering prayer or any such thing. You're twisting God's word to make it support this practice, and it doesn't. It is good to wait patiently for Yahweh to set us free. Let those who bear such a burden sit in silence. Yeah, they were mourning <laughs> the fall of Jerusalem. Read Lamentations and you kind of get what's going on. You know? In Luke 5.16, we're told that Jesus often withdrew to solitary places. Solitary places so he could pray. And when asked, you know, Lord, how should we pray? Jesus did not say, well, get into the lotus position, um, put your fingers and you know, make a circle, you know, in order to harness the energies and then do this um, and turn your mind off and just practice being in the presence of God so that you can be one with the deity. He didn't say anything like that. Jesus said, when you pray, say, 
Notice Jesus didn't say, when you pray, don't do nothing, be silent. That's not what he said. He said, when you pray, say, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Yeah, see, this is what Jesus said. And he said to say it. He didn't say to sit silently and go home or anything like that. So we got a big problem here. And in Matthew 26, 41, Jesus says, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Yeah, and in that particular passage, that's on the night when Jesus was betrayed there at the uh, Mount of Olives. And uh, Jesus is praying. In fact, he's so tense about what's going on, praying, you know, you know, sweating drops of blood, right? And uh, and the disciples, he's asked them to pray and watch, and they don't even do that. They fall asleep. And you know, shortly after this, Jesus is arrested, and his passion sufferings begin in earnest. Oh, boy. That's not, Jesus was not saying to his disciples, sit and, and become contemplative. The spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. These are only a few of the texts that speak to solitude, silence, and stillness. And none of them actually teach contemplative mysticism, not one, or a contemplative practice. As critical practices for prayer. No, actually, none of them are critical practices for prayer. Again, you're twisting God's word. With scripture as our foundation, we can then look to Christian tradition where we find several contemplative practices in the writings of church fathers and mothers and theologians and mystics. Uh Practices that you've maybe heard of, such as Lectio Divina. Lectio Divina. Uh Uh-huh. That's where you just randomly pick a passage of scripture. You take your Bible and you open it. Stick your finger down and uh, and then whatever your, your, your finger falls on. Read the passage, not for understanding, you know, read it and reread it and reread it and reread it until something really steps out at you. And then, you know, that's going to get you into an altered state of consciousness where you can feel and experience God's presence. Nowhere in scripture is Lectio Divina taught. Centering prayer, the Jesus prayer, the prayer of examine. Yeah, Ignatius Loyola's prayer of examine, um, by, developed by Jesuits. <clears throat> so, uh, I mean, somebody's got some explaining to do. Um, why is a woman with this theology, number one, giving a workshop at Catalyst in Dallas to teach this practice with the theology that's associated with it in an evangelical context? And why was she speaking at Biola? Maybe she was invited, you know, so that the folks there can, you know, maybe this was part of some like, comparative uh Theology course? Yeah, I don't know. But um, yeah, um, by the way, if you know anybody who's into this stuff, you need to shake them and wake them up. This is dark, dark stuff. This comes out of the New Age. This is pantheistic stuff. Monism and Christianity are not compatible. Pantheism and Christianity are not compatible. And what I'll do today is something I did you know, last week is I'll put into the podcast feed and link to it from today's program, a program where I covered this in depth, including read an article by Marsha Montenegro on this exact topic uh, back in 2011, you know, kind of a, you know, fighting for the faith classic. So if you haven't heard it, 
you can hear it. And it's kind of important that you do because um, clearly, um, you know, with what's going on at Catalyst, the, you know, evangelicalism is once again, uh, the higher ups and the mucky mucks and the uh, seeker driven network are pulling this thing out and, uh, you know, trying to pass it off again as a Christ- as a form of Christian prayer. And it's not. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. Going to Faith Church St. Louis. Here a Nicole Crank sermon. Yeah, I know. Just write it out. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. No, seriously. Starfleet wouldn't have lasted two minutes against the Death Star. Say what you want, dude. Why can't you admit that Star Trek created proton torpedoes first? So what are you saying? Without proton torpedoes, Luke Skywalker would never have been able to destroy the Death Star in the first place. Nuh-uh, bro. He had the Force. You mean metachlorians? That never happened. Those movies were just bad fanfics. Have you two seen any Daleks around here? Uh, no. That's funny. We just picked up a distress signal and decided to check it out. Well, we haven't seen any... Come on, you two! Get in! Run! Never fear, nerds of the world. It doesn't matter whether you're into Star Wars, Star Trek, or Doctor Who. Think Geek has something for almost every fandom around. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review Time. Normal week today, so, yeah, we start off. Mondays are usually bad sermon days, so we're not going to break with tradition. Just going to plow right ahead. Well, let's cue this up and do it right, though. Here we go. Hey, ho! 
The good, the bad, and the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Faith Church St. Louis. Nicole Crank presiding. Uh, the name of her sermon is entitled Surviving to Thriving. And what you're going to hear in this sermon is a twisting of the story of um, the saving of Moses as an infant, kind of narcissistic eisegesis style, and a complete missing of the point when it comes to the story of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness, which may prompt me to actually preach a counter-sermon. That's right, I recently preached a sermon uh, regarding Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, and uh, I may be inspired to read that sermon to you as a counter-sermon in the middle of the sermon review to kind of clear the air and uh, help save you from bad sermonage, you know, from Nicole Crank, who, by the way, is not a pastor, not according to the Bible, and she shouldn't be preaching and teaching. So, without any further ado, let me go ahead and kill the music. Here is Nicole Crank and her sermon entitled Surviving to Thriving. Here we go. This is not my baby. I borrowed her. But it does remind me of when Ashton was little. You know, when I was pregnant with Ashton, you know, we were laying in bed one night, you know, when the baby starts moving and you want to put your husband's hand on it and feel it kick and it's so exciting. Well, he put his hand on my belly and Ashton was kicking on the inside like crazy. You you guys remember the Tasmanian devil from like the Bugs Bunny cartoons? Ashton was the Tasmanian devil on the inside and she was trying to claw her way out, which explains why she acted like that when she came out. (laughs) But so she was being really active and I'm like, feel this, sweetie, feel this. He's like, oh, that is so exciting. I love that. And then he said, you know, I'm still the same guy that you married, right? And I'm like, well, I certainly hope so. Don't pull any changes on me now. And he said, well, you know, that means I ride a motorcycle and I like to do my thing and car seats don't go on motorcycles. I'm like, brilliant observation, sweetie. Sure way to get pulled over. (laughs) And he's like, so I'm going to still do my thing and I'm going to still do what I do. And you're going to do all the mom stuff because I'm not taking that kid to the zoo. I'm not taking that kid to Grant's farm. I'm not doing any of that, 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 that stuff. Well, it's, you know, seven, eight months pregnant. What do you think I did? I burst into tears. Oh, sweetie, I can't believe I'm married to you. You are an absolute monster. You're horrible. You did this to me in the first place. And now you're just going to let me raise this baby by myself. Well, we got over it. And a couple of months later, Ashton showed up and We're in the hospital room at the hospital, and luckily nobody was in the bed next to me, so David spent the night, and he's in the hospital bed with Ashton laying next to him. And the nurse comes in and says, Sir, you may not have that baby in the bed with you. You could hurt that baby. And my husband rised up like an absolute gruesome monster. He said, Lady, nobody's taking this baby away from me. It's going with me everywhere. And while I was doing message prep on Friday or Saturday, they were at the amusement park riding roller coasters without me sending me pictures. Because <laughs> he's never going to take her any of those places. <laughs> well, you know what? If you want to take Ashton away from us today, how much do you think we would pay to keep her? Or if she was in a life-threatening situation, do you think we would jump in front of the bullet or you think we'd just let her take it? How many of you would jump in front of a bullet for your baby? That's the way we feel about our kids. Well, there's a lady in the Bible. Her name is Jochebed. And she's pregnant and she's getting ready to have a baby. And it's at a time when any of the little babies that are born that are girls in the Hebrew nation.
Yeah, now this Jacobet is Moses' mother. So just understand that's the story that we're kind of, sort of, going to hear. But notice it's not being told in the story of Moses in the Exodus. It really has to do with, you know, your life. I mean, so we can just take it, just parachute into any old passage, rip it out of context, take a section of it, and then make it about ourselves. That's what Nicole's about to do. Nation, you get to keep those. But any little babies that are born that are boys, you have to throw them in the Nile River to drown them. So, I mean, I can't even imagine to get ourselves in the frame. It's not just a story. This is history. This is what happened. And so what, what would it feel like to have the baby in your arms and know, I have to throw this baby in the river? I can't do that. She even whimpered right then. No. <laughs> you can't, I can't do that. Could you imagine having to do that? So she has a baby boy, and she's freaking out. And what is she going to do? And she's in absolute turmoil. So she hides the baby the best she can for three months, but she knows the baby's crying. She's going to be found out. She's a slave, so they might not just kill the baby. They might kill her whole family. So she started thinking, okay, I've got to throw the baby in the Nile River. Well, I'll do that, but I'm going to make a basket first. Now, notice she's not actually reading the biblical text at all. <clears throat> That's a bad sign. We're just getting a uh, <clears throat> kind of a cliff notes, Nicole Crank style of the story itself. She's not actually reading the biblical account. Because, of course, the details of what the Bible says don't really matter in their theology. First, and I'm going to put tar on the outside of it and tar on the inside of it so it floats. And I'm going to put the baby in there and I'm going to push him down the river right about the time that Pharaoh's daughter takes a bath. And hopefully she'll find him. I still can't imagine the tears that she cried when she put the baby in a tipsy basket, praying it's not going to flip over, in a river full of alligators and piranha. But yet she puts the baby in there. And lets him go. There's piranha in the Nile? I didn't. I thought that was a South American fish. And I just think, how many times does God ask us to give something precious to him? Trust him. And just push it down the river. Uh, God's never asked me to take my child and push him down the river. Yeah, see, so we're now we're allegorizing this very real historical event, and by allegorizing it, we can change the theology of what's going on here. And we think, God, you're asking me to do something hard in a time of pain, and God's like, I'm not asking you to do this in a time of pain to cause you more pain. I'm asking you to sow in tears so that you can reap in joy. Mm -hmm. And how many other Hebrew women had their sons saved by the daughter of Pharaoh? None. Moses was the only one. And, you know, think about that. Is if this is some kind of formula? If this is really a formula for our life, so in tears that you can, you know, reap and joy, which that verse has nothing to do with this one, then what about all of those countless number of Hebrew women whose sons perished in the Nile. Moses was the only one to survive. Psalms 126. So we start to think all about how we just need to try and survive and how we need to fight. And God has such bigger, better plans than what we think about. 
You know, as the baby went down the river, mama steps back, and I'm sure she went home and cried. But the little sister, she ran down the river next to the baby. And when Pharaoh's daughter, in fact, did come out to take a bath and heard the baby crying in the basket, she sent one of her maids to go get the basket, and they pulled the baby out. And she said, oh, it's one of the Hebrew babies. Oh, he's so cute. Look at him. Oh, I want that baby. If I only had somebody to take care of it. Little sister steps in and says, excuse me, do you need somebody to take care of that baby like a nanny? Maybe somebody who could nurse it? She said, yes. Do you have any idea who might be able to do that? Oh, Hebrew sister said, I just might know somebody. I'll be right back. She goes and gets Jochebed, who gets her baby back, gets paid to take care of her own child. And in the teenage years, gets to give the baby to other people to put in their house and have to deal with. What kind of deal is that? I mean, God just totally hooked her up. And see, God wants to hook you up the same way he hooked up Jochebed, right? Man, this is a complete twisting and mangling and missing the point of that entire story. God really hooked her up for her doing what he asked her to do. And that's the thing that we have to think about. A lot of times we think when God has put us on mission to thrive, we get in this mentality of thinking that all we have to do is survive. Yeah. Um, The story of Moses, his life being spared, has nothing to do with us having a mentality of survival when God wants us to thrive. Nothing whatsoever. The the two are so disconnected that um that to try to connect them is absolutely to show that you have no clue what the Bible is about or what it even says. And if you're anything like me in a time of survival, your claws can come out. How many of you there's people usually react to Times of pressure, two different ways. Some people, they get angry and they yell, don't you mess with me. I'll get you my pretty and your little dog too. You're not going to get my kids. I'm going to stand up for what's right in our family. How many of you deal with it maybe more on that side when pressure comes? There's only two choices. You better be honest because if you don't vote for this one, you're going to have to vote for the other one. Another way that people react to times of pressure They start to feel it, and things start to cave in, and suddenly they can't handle it, and then they cry. God, why did you do this? I don't even understand. I don't know what's going on. How many of you, that's what you do in a time of pressure. How many of you like me, and you just do both? I can't believe this is happening to me. I told you leave them alone. (laughs) I can go from crying to don't touch my baby in (laughs) 2.2. Well, God... He's got better plans for us than us to allow ourselves to war in the flesh and try and take care of ourselves. He's actually looking out for us all the time. You know, I was at this conference and there are all these pastor's wives there and it isn't our normal circle that we're in. But, you know, these guys, these girls, they were all really great ladies and I kind of wanted to be a part of their group and I wanted to be their friend. So I was kind of the new girl and I came in and I was being nice to them and they were being nice to me. But how many of uh, Does this have anything to do with the story of Moses and the Exodus? Like nothing at all. Have you learned anything about what God's word really says or really teaches? No. We're going to learn a lot about Nicole Crank, though. 
Yeah, a lot. Way too much, in fact. You can tell when people are being nice, but they're not really picking up what you're putting down. So it's just not clicking. And I went back and I told David, I'm like, David, what's, what's wrong? Why don't I fit with these people? And he said, Nick, don't worry about it. But I couldn't get it off my mind. So we're heading into a service and I walk up behind these two girls that are talking and little do they know I'm coming up behind them and they're talking about me. She just doesn't fit. She's just not like us. She's just like a square peg in a round hole. And I immediately turned back around and just tried to slink away. Went to the worship service, just raised my arms and started singing. And I was just crying because my feelings were so hurt. And some sweet lady behind me thought I was just blessed in the worship service. So she just starts patting me. I'm like, thanks, God, for letting me pull that off and wipe the tears away. And, oh, are you wanting to go down? Okay, she wants mom. Mom is here. Will you guys give Amber and AJ a hand for loaning us this pretty baby? So I'm wiping the tears away, and, you know, my feelings are just crushed, and I feel like God speak to my heart. And he said, you can stay shriveled up on the floor like that if you want to. I know you're crushed. I said, I am. He said, you're not gum on the bottom of their shoe. Mm. So now we got direct revelation from God to Nicole Crank. Any reason why, based upon her handling of Scripture and what we know about Faith Church St. Louis, why we should believe that God, the Holy Spirit, is speaking directly to Nicole Crank? I have no reason to believe that. None whatsoever. You. He said, you think that you have to try and get in this group. You think in order to survive in this group, you've got to get in there and make them like you. He said, I didn't call you to be the round peg that they are. Quit trying to survive where I don't even want you. I've called you to be that square peg and you fit over here. So stop trying to survive over here when I'm calling you to thrive in this space. Mm, Wow. Direct revelation and applause line too. And everyone's clapping. So now she's, whatever this direct revelation, she's teaching it in church, right? Because she's teaching it in, ter- in church, she's teaching her direct revelation as if it is on par with Scripture. Is she not? It's exactly what she's doing. Why should I believe that God wants me to believe what, he, what she believes God told her in her heart? Hmm? God's word doesn't say anything even remotely approaching this. That made so much sense to me. I was like, yeah, that's right. I felt like the Saturday Night Live skit when I'm looking in the mirror. I am pretty. I am smart. And gosh darn it, people do like me. (laughs) You ever felt like that? (laughs) And it changed the way I was thinking. So many times you and I, we have a survival mentality instead of a thriving mentality. And the craftiest trick of the enemy is this. He does what he does and he brings all this pressure and makes us feel like we have done these things to bring it on ourselves. Matter of fact, religious people help you out with that. If you ever get sick or, or somebody goes to heaven early or, or you lose your job, they'll, they'll look at you and they'll say, oh, well, you must be in sin. What sin is it you're committing? Well, I know you're committing the one of pride right now. <laughs> That's obvious. When they look down their nose at us. How many of you have sinned yesterday? How many of you went ahead and sinned this morning just to get it out of the way? 
Okay, so we're raising our hands as a confession of sins. I hope you're going to tell them about the shed blood of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of their sins, won by him on the cross, if we're going to be confessing that we're sinners. Right, we sin every day. The enemy doesn't have to wait for us to sin. And then we think, oh, we're in this big trial because we sinned. No, at the same time, I'm not giving us license to go do whatever we want. And you go out and you start acting crazy, start doing drugs, start doing heroin and say, well, it's just the enemy. How did I get here? No, that's not what I'm saying. But I am saying this. Many, many times the pressure starts coming before we get promoted, not because we're doing something wrong, but because we're doing something right. Uh, what Bible passage says this again? Oh, yeah. She's not really actually preaching a text. All right, we continue. And it's an applause line. False doctrine, applause line. Yeah, people are clapping at the false doctrine. That's great. It even happened to Jesus. Uh, what? In Luke 4, it says, Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, he returned and was led by the Spirit. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And he was 40 days tempted by the devil. And what's the theological significance of that again? Jesus wasn't led into the desert for 40 days because of his sin. Jesus wasn't... Right, he's the spotless, sinless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, right? He wasn't led into the, in the desert to fast and go to war with the enemy for 40 days because he'd done something wrong. Jesus himself, who never sinned, was led into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. Why? How many of you know if Jesus is doing something right and going to be tempted of the enemy, it's going to come to us too? Oh, man, this is painful. All right. Nicole has left me no choice. I'm going to have to <clears throat> interact here and, and at least interject and uh, play for you a portion of a uh, sermon I delivered not too long ago from the temptation story from the Gospel of Matthew. In fact, let me read the text uh, that was uh, that, that this sermon was based on. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Here's what it says. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All of this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended him. Now, this is the text that forms the basis of the sermon that you are about to hear. I actually have audio of it. Um, and um, the name of the sermon is entitled, The Penultimate Battle. You're thinking, oh, wait, 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 wait. Shouldn't it be the ultimate? No, it's not. It's, this is the penultimate battle. Here's my sermon. Grace, mercy, and peace to you, dear brothers and sisters in Christ. 
I must confess that I am old enough to remember Muhammad Ali. Yeah, in fact, when I was a kid, our family used to watch ABC's Wide World of Sports. And I remember when I was young, watching coverage of Muhammad Ali preparing for a fight. They showed his training regimen and talked about Leon Spinks, his opponent. And when they would interview Ali, the trash talk would come flowing out of him in poetic iambic pentameter. Ali was the champ who could float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. The media buildup for the fight had everyone talking about it. And on the day of the fight, the only thing people could think about was the fight. And as many of you may remember, Muhammad Ali, the heavyweight champion of the world, lost that first fight to Leon Spinks. And the only thing that people could talk about the next day was Ali's fall. Now, I say all of this to help us draw a parallel. We, in our modern experience, know about epic battles. But what we've experienced is nothing compared to the epic battle that took place in our gospel text this first Sunday of Lent. In fact, what we just read was the account of one of the most epic battles in the history of our universe. But remember this, it wasn't the most epic. Now the devil, until that point in history, was the undefeated conqueror of humanity. And there wasn't a man alive that he hadn't successfully tempted to sin. Our Old Testament text this morning recounts for us the sad history of our first parents, Adam and Eve, and how when the devil showed up to tempt them, they succumbed to his temptation. And as our epistle text this morning explains, it was because they sinned that we are all sinners. The devil won on that fateful day, and because of that, we all live in a cursed creation, born with a corrupted, sinful nature, destined to toil, futility, disease, suffering, death, born slaves to sin, death, and the devil and his dark dominion. And you think the fascist and communist dictatorships of recent human history on our planet were bad? Well, they're nothing compared to the tyrannical dominion of God's sadistic, maniacal, and murderous enemy called Satan. There isn't and wasn't a single human being capable of standing up to him, let alone powerful enough to defeat him until our champion, our Savior, appeared. He, Jesus, was promised all the way back in the Garden of Eden. Did you hear it in the Old Testament text this morning? When God cursed the serpent and said, And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Even in the midst of God's handing out of punishment and curses for the rebellion and disobedience, Adam and Eve heard the first gospel, the first good news that God would raise up a seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. And if Satan could be crushed, that means he could be defeated. And if Satan could be defeated, then that means that Adam and Eve and their cursed descendants could be freed from Satan's dominion. In short, the Lord had promised them a hero, a conqueror, a savior, all the way back in the Garden of Eden. The challenge had been issued, and all that was left was to set the date for the epic battle. Now, ages and millennia came and went, and during that time, God called for himself a people from among the tribes of mankind by cutting a covenant with Abraham, who had believed God's promises to him, and God credited it to him as righteousness. From Abraham's descendants came the twelve tribes of Israel, whom God rescued from slavery with mighty acts of judgment. And from Israel was cho chosen the tribe of Judah to be the tribe from which the Messiah, 
the Savior would come. The build-up to this ultimate battle didn't take place over days or weeks, but ages and over time that must have seemed like eons. But finally, one evening, nearly 2,000 years ago, shepherds of Bethlehem who were in the fields keeping watch over their flock at night had a glorious angel of the Lord appear to them and announce the great news of great joy to them that in the city of David, the Savior had been born. Christ the Lord himself had now walked on to the battlefield. The time to crush the serpent's head had come. The time to defeat the greatest slave master and tyrant in the history of the universe had finally arrived. Satan, that cunning snake, watched as Jesus grew from a nursing infant to a schoolboy studying scriptures in the synagogue to a young man working in his earthly father's carpentry shop and finally to full manhood. The dark Lord waited patiently and he studied his opponent carefully and concocted a sneaky, slippery, slithery plan to knock Jesus out of the fight before the final battle by doing to him what he'd done to that pathetically weak man, Adam, and his silly wife. That is, tempt Jesus to sin. It worked then, and Satan believed that it would work now. The only difficulty was picking the most opportune time to strike. Satan always curious about his foe, saw Jesus be baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. And Satan heard the voice of the Father say, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And Satan also saw that the Holy Spirit had led Jesus out of Israel, back across the Jordan, out into the wilderness, the same exact wilderness where the children of Israel wandered for 40 years, more than a millennia prior. And Satan was delighted to see that Jesus was fasting. And this was no short little fast, no. Jesus fasted for 40 days. And at the end of those 40 days, Jesus was hungry. And Jesus was weak. Satan knew that he had no chance of defeating a strong Jesus. If he had any shot at knocking the Savior out before the final battle, it would be when Jesus was at his physically weakest. The time to strike had come. Now, the opening attack was elegant in its simplicity. The intended goal of the attack was to get Jesus to doubt the Father's word. In the garden, all those ages ago, the snake bite happened with a question. Did God really say? Now, the strike against the physically weakened Jesus happened with these words. If you are the Son of God... If Satan could get Jesus to doubt that he's the son of God, then Jesus would foolishly and sinfully act on those doubts. And once that happened, then Satan would defeat the son of God and enslave him like he'd enslaved every other human being. So the strike comes. If you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. But... The venomous strike against Jesus missed. Jesus had no doubts. Even in his weakened state, he knew with certainty that he is the Son of God. So taking up the sword of God's word, Jesus strikes back and lands a blow. It is written, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The devil 
reeling from the blow, can't believe what has just happened. No man had ever been able to stand his ground against him. And seeing red as the anger swelled up from within his blackened heart, he said to himself, well, if Jesus wants to fight with the sword of God's word, then two can play at that game. So with his twisted and evil powers, the devil whisks Jesus to the holy city. And now Jesus and the devil are standing on the highest point of the temple, and the devil wields the sword of the word of God against Jesus. But... The devil is incapable of rightly wielding God's word because it is the word of truth and he is the father of lies. So his attack with it, with the word of God, is awkward, deceptive, and clunky. And here's how the blow went. If you are the son of God, he said, still trying to get Jesus to doubt the father's words, Throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. But Jesus knows the scriptures like the back of His hand, and He detects the devil's deception. Satan wasn't accurately quoting God's word, nor could he if he tried. Like the snake that he is, he had twisted God's word by ripping it from its context and omitted key portions of the passage, and by doing so had created the false impression, the false misleading impression, that God's word somehow promises Jesus that he could ignore the laws of physics and gravity and could foolishly throw himself off of temples and cliffs. But that is not what God's word promises. And besides, Jesus didn't need to prove to himself or to Satan that he was the son of God. He had no doubts that the words of the father were true. So Jesus again takes up the sword of God's word and blocks Satan's feeble blow by saying, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. The devil is repulsed and he's now reeling and seething in this state. The devil can't help but show what a sick and twisted and maniacal creature he is. So the devil, in one last desperate attack, whisks Jesus to a very high mountain and shows him all of the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. And drunk with power and with a lust for Jesus to worship him says, All of this I will give to you if you will bow down and worship me. Now this reveals just how evil and twisted the devil is. As the kids today would say, he is one sick puppy. This creepy creature wants to be God. It doesn't get any sicker than that. And Jesus, still wielding the sword of the word of God, says, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus' defense seemed almost effortless, and he sent Satan slinking off the battlefield, licking his wounds in defeat after his cunning and clever plan had blown up in his face. Our champion, our savior, our deliverer won this epic battle, even in a terribly weakened state. So weak, in fact, That in the aftermath of this deadly duel, we're told that angels came and took care of and attended Jesus. Now, earlier in the sermon, I said that this was one of the most epic battles in the history of our universe, but that it wasn't the most epic battle. Our champion, our savior, 
our deliverer's most epic battle was still to come. It was the battle of battles, and it would come three years after Jesus beat back the devil and his temptations in the wilderness. And that final epic battle was the one that secured our salvation and freed us from slavery to sin, death, and the devil himself. It was the battle that took place on a Friday afternoon just outside the city gates of Jerusalem, in the shadow of the temple, on the slopes of Mount Moriah. That battle concluded with Jesus shouting, It is finished, and then dying. But today is only the first Sunday in Lent. The details of that battle will be recounted in all of their splendor during Holy Week, but not today. Now, some of you may be saying to yourselves, Well, what we've heard this morning is a fascinating and oddly inspiring story, but what does it mean for me? Great question. I'm glad you asked. It means this. You who were born sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, who were born under the dominion of the bloodthirsty, maniacal tyrant with a God complex known as the devil, and are slaves to sin and face the just penalty for your sin, which is death, and not just temporal death, but eternal death in the lake of fire. You, me, we have a champion who loves us, who has battled the evil one for us and has won. He has come to set us free from the dominion of darkness to wash away all of our sins and the stain of its guilt. And if the Son of God sets us free, we are free indeed. Therefore, repent of the fruitless deeds of darkness which you have learned from the devil and the world and be forgiven. Jesus, your champion, your savior, has conquered and plundered the devil's kingdom and is setting the captives, you and me included, free. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And he is the only one of us who has stood toe-to-toe with the devil in mortal combat and has always won. He, Jesus, crushed the head of the serpent by bleeding and dying for our sins and rising again on the third day for our justification. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is not a tyrant. No, Jesus is good. He is our loving God who has conquered the devil for us, conquered death itself for us, and is now leading us to his promised holy kingdom, a new heaven and a new earth with no sin, no suffering, no disease, no growing old, no death in a world without end where we can enjoy our God from ages into the ages. He has washed away our sins in the waters of our baptism. He sustains us with his word and he feeds us with his body and blood in the supper. He has clothed us in his righteousness. He has saved us by grace alone through faith alone as a gift. He has reconciled us to the Father through his blood. He he was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace with God was upon him. He is coming again with glory to judge the living and the dead. He holds the keys of death and Hades. And very shortly, he will toss the devil, his demons, and his followers into the lake of fire. And they will never again trouble us, ever. Trust and keep trusting. Believe and keep believing in your Savior, your champion, your deliverer, your redeemer, your Jesus who conquered the devil. And you will live in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Hopefully that sermon from a few weeks ago will give you some idea of who the story of, the te- of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness is actually about and what it really does mean for us. 
man, I hate this part. <clears throat> now it's time to go back to Nicole Crank. We kind of interrupted her horrible, awful sermon to put something else in there. You know, kind of, I you know, had to put my sermon in there in protest. But here's the remaining portion of Nicole's sermon, Surviving to Thriving. Here we go. So what do we do? How do we react? What, how do we fight? Do we try and survive or do we try and thrive? Well, Jesus is in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights. No food, no water. He is fasting. Anybody in the room ever fasted for 40 days? I have not. I have, however, been 40 minutes late for dinner and thought I was going to die. <laughs> I have fasted just a little bit before, and I thought I could smell a saltine cracker 40 miles away, and I was willing to walk the whole way on glass to get it. <laughs> I have never done what he had to do, and yet he was able to withstand it. And he wasn't trying to survive. He came out with the mentality to thrive. And the enemy comes. It says in, in verse 13, it says, And when the devil had ended all temptation... He departed from him, from Jesus, for a season. For a season. And another version says, for an opportune time. There's two points we really got to get out of this, because you could glaze over it and miss it, and you could walk through life thinking about things differently. Number one, the devil went away after a season. What does that mean? It means every attack that comes against you can't last forever. Every attack has a shelf life. It has an expiration date. Have you ever gone to your pantry in the kitchen and you grab out this? Really? Really? The story of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness is not about me or the trials that I go through. And the reality is, is each and every one of us face some kind of a trial that will ultimately lead to our death. So, yeah, it has an expiration date. That particular trial does. It expires. That trial expires when I do. Oh, man. Cereal and pour your bowl of cereal, go to the refrigerator, get your milk, pour your milk. You take your first bite and you realize something has just gone terribly wrong. <laughs> you spit it out and it goes everywhere. You look at that, mu that milk and you realize it is expired. Things have expiration dates. Your trial has an expiration date. This pressure has an expiration date. This illness has an expiration date. This layoff has an expiration date. This setback has an expiration date. I'm here to tell you, the enemy cannot maintain an attack. But what happens, here's what we do. We fall back in that. We go into a survival mentality or we try and war against it in our flesh. Have you ever just wanted to sucker punch somebody? Right? Or you get in the shower with them, you start talking to them. I'd tell you what I'd tell you if I saw you right now. I would just tell you what. Come on, y'all talk to people in your shower. I know you do. <laughs> the enemy comes to get us at war in our flesh, gets us into a survival mentality so we can miss the thriving mentality that he has for us. And there's a reason. Why did the enemy come to Jesus? Because if you go to verse 14, it says, And Jesus returned in the power of the Holy Spirit, and the fame of him went out all about the region. The enemy knew that power and fame were coming to Jesus. 
well, gosh, you shouldn't chase fame. That is just so carnal. Oh, my gosh, talk about that in church. The enemy knew that power and fame were coming to Jesus? No, 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 no. Not just like Justin Bieber put the lights on me fame. This is God's word is becoming famous. People are talking about the goodness of God all across the land. The enemy knows this is coming. And any time that we are going to increase in power, any time we are going to... We, we, we... How are you saying we when you're talking about Jesus? <sighs> Increase in influence. The enemy is going to come against us because he doesn't want to happen to us what happened to Jesus. And that's some of the first words he says in Luke 4.18. He says, I have come to heal the brokenhearted and I have come to set the captives free. The enemy knows if we start making money, we're going to start helping people. And he doesn't want that to happen. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to lose it. Okay, I need to do one of those cleansing breath things. Into the nose, out to the mouth. Oh, man. The enemy knows if we have a great testimony, we're going to tell it. And other people are going to get... I'm not telling... I'm telling people about Jesus. What are you talking about? Get encouraged and helped, and he doesn't want to happen. But I'm here to tell you this morning, you weren't sent to this earth to survive life. You were sent to this earth to thrive in life. Everybody say, I'm not a survivor. I'm a thriver. But what happens is we get caught up in our flesh. Anybody got flesh? My flesh likes to eat ice cream. It likes to lay on the couch. It likes to do all these things that are not good for me. And the enemy will appeal to that in so many different ways because he knows it's impossible to make a good decision when our flesh is at war. We can only make good decisions when our heart is at peace. You see, back when we were in our old building in Fenton, the building was too small. It was absolutely full of people. We were doing as many services as we could possibly do, and we just had to have more space. So we started meeting with the architects. We spent months and months developing these plans, figuring out who she preaching about. She ain't preaching about Jesus. She's preaching about herself. Because, yeah, that's what I need to hear in church. A Nicole Crank story told by Nicole Crank. This is making me cranky what we were going to do and we came up with this beautiful plan to expand and push it out and it was going to look so much better so we took it to the city and the county and we just expected you know that we would walk through the process just like anybody else but what i was met with was a man who literally put his finger in my face and he told me you will never build that in this town i just thought oh no you didn't <laughs> do you know who you just talked I'm a Christian and I don't cuss, but if I wasn't a Christian, I would right now. It would be so appropriate. I was mad. And I was like, you know what? You can't say that about a church. Churches have laws and we are allowed to build anywhere. You can't prevent us from putting a church right here. We've got the church. We need to expand the church. You can't stop us. That's not even legal. And he said, well, I just told you, you're never going to build that in this town. So I went home and I told my husband what happened. I said, sweetie, I'm going to get an attorney. We're going to get this handled. Don't you worry about it. I'm going to make sure we can get the space. And he said, you go to town, girl. I said, that's right. They're going to sucker punch. I'm going to come around the back. <laughs> so I get the attorney and we go to work. As if Nicole Crank is our great champion. Wow. And we start doing our homework and a few weeks pass and. 
My husband comes out of his prayer room in a time of prayer and he says, sweetie, that plan to build the church, fight the city, we're not going to do that. I said, husband said, what? (laughs) Sweetie, you're supposed to be on my side, not their side. What are you talking about? We got this. I mean, the laws are in our favor. And he said, I told you we're not going to do that. So my flesh is raging and I'm thinking, okay, we'll not do that while you're looking. (laughs) But I had to submit to my spiritual authority. So I'm doing my best to calm my flesh down. And once my flesh starts calming down, my heart starts coming back to peace. Well, some months later, we're still out of room and things aren't working right. And this very building right here comes up for sale. This church is going to buy our old building and our church was buying this building. Well, we immediately wanted to change the front and make it ours and make it feel like our church. And they wanted to change things on that building. They're like, it's not quite big enough. And I mean, we just want to make it ours. We would need to add on. We would need to do something. And we don't know if we have the time to get all that done. And I said, hey, wait a minute. I got some plans in the closet. And I went and I rolled them out and I put them on the table and they went, this is exactly what we want to do. Can we have these? And I said, sure. Good luck with them. And would you know, they went to the exact same city official I did. They walked in with the plans. They unrolled them. And his words to them were, we've been waiting for something like this to happen to this building. We were following God's plan. But when trouble came, I went to war in the flesh because I was out, I was out front of God's timing. I was trying to do what he wanted to do, but I was trying to do it in my time. So I stepped out of my heart of peace and I got into war in the flesh. And if I would have pushed it, that very city could have stopped the entire transaction where we bought each other's churches. If I would have gone at war in the flesh, thank God I have a pastor, a husband who prays, who said, sweetie, 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 calm down. You just take a break. It's all going to be okay. And that's what allowed us to be able to buy this building. And that's what allowed them to go to construction the moment that they built that building. It's a miracle. See, this proves via signs and wonders that Nicole Crank not only should be a pastrix, but that she hears directly from God. Mm-hmm. God knows what's coming. Give God a hand. I can't applaud that. In Colossians 3, it says, let the peace of Christ rule and act as umpire continually. Uh, What translation is that? I don't think baseball was invented when Paul wrote the epistle to the Colossian church. What does an umpire do? An umpire, his heart's at peace. He's not on one team. He's not on the other team. He's not rooting for anybody. Do you watch baseball? I mean, to say that umpires' hearts are at peace. <laughs> yeah, I'm a fan of baseball. I wouldn't say peaceful is the way I'd describe the umpires. He's a neutral party. He's at peace. He looks at what's going on in the surroundings. He looks at what just happens, and he either says, You're out of here, or you're safe. That's what peace, the peace of God, does for us in any situation. When our flesh is at war, we're going to... God's peace is our umpire? (laughs) Oh, you got to laugh. Otherwise, you're going to scream. Take the city down no matter what it costs. And we're going to burn all our bridges in the meantime. When our heart is at peace, we know this is safe. Take your time. Don't push it right now. 
And God will let us know, get that partner out. Get away from that friend. Get out of that job. It's time to get out of that house and it's time to sell. Or that same piece will tell you it's... So she's basically... The piece of God is kind of like the Force in Star Wars Jedi World. Yeah, right. Safe right here. Now's not the time to move your job. Don't cause trouble with your spouse right now. This, this relationship you're walking into, it's the right one. Let the peace of God act as umpire in your life. He wants us to follow what he's doing. It says, letting your hearts deciding with finality all the questions that arise. You can't make decisions in a time of war. You will make the wrong decision. You have to make decisions in a heart of peace. So many times, just one moment. Now, just as a reminder, the biblical passages that we apparently covered in this sermon by Nicole Crank, where the story of Jochebed and uh, you know Moses in the basket in Nile, and uh, you know the opening portion of Exodus, although we didn't actually hear her read that. And something to do with Jesus' temptation in the wilderness from the Gospel of Luke. Are any of these points that she's making seem even remotely connected to either of those texts? No. She's not teaching us anything about what God's Word says. We're learning a lot about Nicole Crank. Way more than I ever wanted to know. Away from getting our breakthrough. We go ahead and allow the pressure to let us break down and we turn away and we walk to this life of survival that we think is okay. When God said, I do not want you to be a survivor. I want you to be a a thriver. Do not give up. Do not give in. The blessing is coming. The grace is here to make it through. If we will just trust him, he's got such a plan. I'm trusting him for a plan. What's his plan again? And I'll close with this. The enemy comes about, 1 Peter 5, 8, as a roaring lion seeking to whom he may devour. You know, he wants to pick us off. He wants to pull us out. He wants us to settle for... Yeah, he's pretty much already accomplished the picking us off part. And that's why Jesus came and set us free, redeemed us, purchased us, and bled on the cross for us. Yeah, the one time she had the opportunity to actually preach about Jesus, she saw herself in the temptation and some principles that she needed to apply to her own life. And you apply, by extension, the way Jesus did, you know. Surviving. And who does an enemy, or who does a, who does a lion hunt for? Have you ever seen a lion on National Geographic? Does he, like, run into this pack of healthy elk and then just pull out the healthiest, strongest elk he can find? No. The lion slinks back. And he trails the herd for miles if he has to, waiting for one to slip back, waiting for one to separate, waiting for one to slow down or maybe be sick. What happened to my friend is she let herself get too busy to be connected to God and to come to church anymore. She got offended at some some chick who said something she had no business saying. And if people are like that, I'm just not going. She thought, well, you know, maybe the church should be helping me out some more. Maybe they should have provided me more guidance and counseling. So forget it. You know what she did? She pulled herself away from the pack and made herself pray. And the enemy comes in looking for us to separate ourselves out. Don't let that happen to you. 
The moment you get offended at somebody at church, you know my breakthrough is coming. The moment something happens that makes... Uh, so if I get offended at church, my breakthrough is coming. <laughs> just want to beat my head against something. Where is she getting any of this? You want to quit? No, my breakthrough is coming. The moment the pressure just starts to build and you don't think you can handle it, know this, your breakthrough is coming. So that's the best news you can hear out of her sermon. Your breakthrough is coming. If somebody says something that causes your eyebrows to furl at church and, you know, and the stench of what they said is, is upsetting your nostrils. Oh, your breakthrough is coming. Oh, what great news that is. Say with me, I'm not going to survive. I'm going to thrive. Now, did this message today, did it feel like I needed to hear that, Nicole? Thank you. No. No, what you said was complete nonsense, and none of it had anything to do with God's word. Why should I feel that this is what I needed to hear? What I need to hear is about Jesus, not you. Oh, yeah, I knew it. This was just going off in my spirit so much. Going off in my spirit? <sighs> Let me pray for you right now. Father no, God. No, 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 you, you no. Know, sorry. No, you do not get to pray for us. Wow. Okay, we've now come to the end of another episode of Fighting for the Faith. I don't think I could put a bow on that and tidy it all up. Hopefully the contrast between my sermon and her sermon will kind of draw the point as to what's really going wrong here. Um, who, you know, Just ask yourself who was preaching about whom, who preached Jesus and who preached herself. I think the pronouns give it away there. And by the way, don't think this was a sermon cage fight. I think that would be an unfair way of, of putting what just happened here because I just don't think it's fair for a guy to, you know, be in a sermon cage fight with a girl. That um, <laughs> something's wrong with that. So that was not a sermon cage fight and don't tell people that's what that was. Okay. <laughs> oh man. Okay, <laughs> we are at the end of another episode of Fighting for the Faith. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>